So tonight I'd like to talk a little bit more about metta for ourselves and what that means and um, just how we do the metta practice. I'd like to start with a story from my most recent trip to Burma. Many of you know that all of us here um, are involved with the retreat that happens every year in the Sagain Hills region of Burma in Upper Burma near Mandalay. And this year I was there with uh, Greg and Jesse. And every time that um, I come back, I often have like images of uh, just a few kind of flashes of different stories that are different things that happen that really stick with me. And so the thing that happened this year that stuck with me the most is what I'm going to tell you about right now. In conjunction with this retreat in um, Chaswa, at Chaswa Monastery, we also have a, a public kind of service or a, um, a project where we help out with many different uh, aspects of village life. So um, we support a, um, a school, the school in the village. We've done a lot of, um, made a lot of donations to build onto the school, improve it, pay for tuition and uniforms and We've also supported a, a, the hospital and um, about 100 nuns in three different nunneries. And so this year I um, had the pleasure of being a person seen as a, as a benefactor um, by giving out a lot of these funds. Michelle usually does it, but she wasn't there this year. So um, I was seen as a, as a very generous person even though it wasn't my, well, some of it was, I donated, but it wasn't, most of it wasn't my funds. And um, it was interesting to be in that position. So a few days before I left, I decided I wanted to walk in the hills. The monastery's on the, on a hillside of the Irrawaddy River. And it's this area with, um, six or seven hundred pagodas and monasteries in a few square miles. So it's very uh, rich in, in Buddhist um, spirit. So I wanted to walk up in the hills, but I decided I wanted uh, some company. So I decided that I would go and um, see if I could get some nuns to walk with me. And there was this one nun, she was... 13 years old, and uh, her name was Kamala, Kamala Nyani. And I hadn't ever talked to her, but when I'd been at her nunnery, she was very kind of vivacious. She was always trying to connect with me. Like, she had to sit to the side because she was younger, but she'd always be kind of like looking at me and smiling and connecting. And um, I really kind of hoped that I could walk with her. So I went to her nunnery. And uh, they were all in class, and um, I asked the head mistress if I could walk with a few of the nuns. And um, I think if I'd realized like the position of power I had, I might not have asked in that. I didn't really realize how much I was seen as a benefactor, um, but she immediately was like, yes. She goes, how many nuns would you like? <laughs> and I said, well, I'll take three. <laughs> So she, um, she counted out three of the younger nuns, and they were the exact three that I was most connected with. One was like 12, and one was 13, and one was like 11. And um, 
they took me on this long walk up in the hills. It wound up being close to three hours, um, which I hadn't expected. <laughs> and they took me to all these just incredible places, um, a mummified arahant and uh, just lots of um, different monasteries and all. So at a certain point, I, I was feeling you know, very grateful for them to have walked me around. So I, I said to Kamalanyani, I said, um, I had studied a little Burmese before I went, and I was doing a fair job, and I had my little dictionary. And she spoke a little English, but really little. But I said something about, well, thank you for taking me around. And she kind of looked at me almost puzzled. She takes my dictionary. She thumbs through it for a while. And she puts her hand on her heart, and she says, you. And then she points to the word. She says, that was benefactor. So you're my benefactor. And there was such a um, look of gratitude, and it was like open gratitude, something that I'm not used to um, seeing so much, I think, in our culture, but just this open gratitude and acknowledgement that I was a benefactor and that she really loved to be able to um, give back to me. I think that in our um, society that's so oriented towards individualism that uh, we forget sometimes that we live embedded in a web of interconnectedness. And when we relate to our benefactor on the um, retreat and when we're cultivating metta with our benefactor either for or receiving from our benefactor, um, it starts to break down some of that um, illusion of separateness. And with the metta practice, we keep doing that. We keep um, understanding our interconnectedness with others and our interconnectedness with the earth and the universe and the air and the flowers and the trees and our friends and those that we don't like. We keep uh, stretching um, where we feel that connectedness and our understanding that we're not separate. So in that way, I'd say that metta practice subverts the dominant paradigm in this country, this dominant paradigm that that we are who we are only because we've made ourselves that way, that individualistic, um, uh, very kind of competitive... um, isolating um, paradigm. You could also say that metta is um, the understanding of our essential sameness with all beings. So that we, we understand that we all want happiness. We understand that we all wish to um, not suffer We understand that we all perceive ourselves as separate, but that we're interconnected. So I would say that metta practice challenges or can challenge many of our assumptions that we have about life, about how it is and how we are, what brings happiness. And while on the surface it may seem simple, the concept or idea of metta, the deeper that we go into the experience, 
the more we can appreciate the vastness of love, of metta. And as I think Michelle said yesterday, it's not an intellectual understanding, but actually a very visceral one, one that we feel throughout our being as the practice deepens. Even how we do the practice itself, the underlying assumptions of that can be interesting to explore. So that will be some of what we'll talk about tonight. We have to understand the assumptions that we've inherited from our family, from our society, and um, explore whether they're actually true or not. So what about this uh, common societal um, dis-ease that we have that many of us perceive ourselves as inadequate, that we're not, um, we're just not good enough, that we need fixing, and that nothing short of perfectionism will do. It's a very common um, issue that we hear a lot about in, in um, our interviews. We live in this individualistic society where we're supposed to be all we can be, and yet somehow we feel like we fall short. One thing I love to do on long airplane rides, especially ones all the way to Burma, which are very long, um, is look through the magazines in the, in the seat pockets to kind of um, see what the mainstream is up to or see like what, what like culturally we're, we're absorbing because it's, it's pretty much all there. So this last one um, on my trip to Burma, I found this, I don't, I guess it's an ad called Your Prettiest You. So there's a picture of a couple of beautiful um, women and it says, Renowned makeup artist Bobby Brown believes women should, quote, look and feel like themselves, only prettier and more confident. (laughs) This really struck me. (laughs) Um, I think what's really funny is that it's actually serious. So, but this is kind of the conundrum that we have in our society. We're supposed to be who we are, yet we're supposed to be also better than who we are, prettier, more confident. And men, there's also a version for you, I know. Um, it's such a setup. It's like impossible to achieve. Look and feel like themselves, only prettier and more confident. So metta is, um, this isn't uh, metta. This isn't the assumption that we're starting from with metta. Metta is more unconditional acceptance of who and how we are. It's more like this poem that I'm going to read to you. Um, It has the God word in it. I hope you'll... um, be okay with that. It's called God Says Yes to Me by Kaylin Hart. I asked God if it was okay to be melodramatic, and she said yes. I asked her if it was okay to be short, and she said it sure is. 
I asked her if I could wear nail polish or not wear nail polish. And she said, honey, she calls me that sometimes. She said, you can do exactly, you can do just exactly what you want to. Thanks, God, I said. And is it even okay if I don't paragraph my letters? Sweet cakes, God said. Who knows where she picked that up. What I'm telling you is, yes, yes, yes. So metta practice is a little bit more like yes, yes, yes. So we may have come to this mental retreat with the idea that we can fix ourselves or fill ourselves with metta so that we're a more adequate or presentable human being. And if this is our idea about metta, then we're bound to fail because metta itself is the complete acceptance of ourselves as we are. And as we are isn't always pretty, and it's not always presentable either. Can we love that? I read, um, there's one writer, a Zen writer I like to read a lot, named Lynn Jensen. And in his most recent book, I read this little part where he said that, um, he was telling about the first time that Pema, Pema Chodron met uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, the famous Tibetan teacher, they're both famous. <laughs> it says, he told everyone present that if they'd come to get their act together, they should just forget it because they never would. <laughs> this is really great news. <laughs> this means that we can relax and put our energy into love rather than into endless self-improvement. We're not here to solve a problem. We're not here to fix something that's broken or to improve who we are. Yes, we still do what's good and wholesome. We know it's a good thing to cultivate uh, loving kindness, loving friendliness. So we do it. We do it out of wisdom, knowing that it's wholesome. There's a um, teacher from New York City. He's um, rather a little bit of the younger generation, not too young, but younger than me. And he has a book called One City, A Declaration of Interdependence. And he's talking a little bit about this societal conditioning. He says, the basic message has always been the same. You are not enough. The longer version goes like this. Face it, you were never one of the cool kids. In fact, you've never even come close to being cool. For this transgression, you will forever remain unworthy of the blessings in your life. You are inadequate in ways you can't even describe or pinpoint. (laughs) But if you do this, if you get that, if you believe the other thing, then you might, maybe, possibly be okay for only a little while. 
I've become the worst kind of consumer, a consumer of unmeetable expectations. So much time in life has been lost chasing the morphing ghosts of cool when I could have been learning how to be kind. So we can um, start learning to put down the struggle of never living up to what we think we should be. And we'll all see it in our practice, right? We, we go through our days here and, and there's um, lots of assessment going on. How was that sitting? How was that phrase? How was that breath? How was that step? Did I do it well enough? Am I doing it right? How could have I done it better? I certainly could have done it much better. Um, that goes on, right? All day long on a retreat. But we can learn to start um, seeing that for what it is. Unmeetable expectations. And learning to start learning to relax with kindness and with care into what is. To who we are moment after moment. Through that experience of life like the... the, uh, guided sitting at four o'clock, right? The experience of life through all of our senses. So we may come to the retreat with the assumption that we need to be fixed or made better and that metta will do that. And so we start to question that assumption. Another assumption we may come with is... um, thinking that we can use our will to develop metta. That we can make metta happen. And we all try that too, right? We sit down and, okay, I'm going to feel metta. And there's some kind of um, force sometimes that we try to use to make that happen. And again, we, we, we live in a culture that's very will-oriented. We're, we're very much doers. Another, I just have to share another um, thing I found. It's a book called The Ten Natural Laws of Successful Time and Life Management. (laughs) Proven Strategies for Increased Productivity and Inner Peace. (laughs) There it is again, right? It's so amazing. Like, you know, how bombarded we are with these kinds of assumptions, right? So... We're going to increase productivity and inner peace at the same time. I would question whether that's, uh, well, maybe in some ways it's possible. But so we try, we come here and we try to figure out how we can make metta happen. And um, at a certain point we see that, uh, that trying to force metta isn't going to work. we start to learn that we have to actually uh, relax into metta, that that's how we discover what it is. In the last uh, year or so, I've been studying uh, Qigong. And um, the classes are so interesting to me because they're excruciatingly slow. 
Um, so the first seven-week series I took, mostly we were learning how to stand, uh, you know, for weeks and weeks, learning how to stand. Or like the first instruction that I was given was, relax the back of your knees. That was that kind of blew my mind. Relax the back of your knees. What does that mean? Um, and you know, I've been working on that one ever since. So, what I had to, um, you know, so I'm chomping at the bit. I'm like, when are we really going to get going here? And um, it it doesn't happen. It's slow. And so, the part of the what I'm learning or what I learned from these classes is how to. Um, not try to get anywhere, you know, to kind of surrender and relax into the process itself, not the finished product that I think I might get to, right? The other day, a couple days ago on Friday, I had a class before I came here, and she was talking um, and said something very interesting. The teacher said, "Um, energy doesn't move in straight lines. She said, it moves in curves and swirls. And somehow that makes me think of metta. You know, metta doesn't move in straight lines. It's softer than that. It moves in curves and swirls. So I think of the, um, the correlations between the Qigong class and, and how we learn metta. If we're really focused, like we're going to get somewhere, we're going to miss it, right? It's like we learn metta in each moment that we learn, that we, that we relax. It kind of messes with your mind a little bit because we find that the harder we try, perhaps the more elusive metta gets to be. But yes, we can do something. The good news is that we can do something. There is a way that we can cultivate metta. And a lot of it's about creating the conditions that nurture metta, that allow it to um, develop or show itself on its own. And so some of those conditions are um, an atmosphere of safety. When we feel safe, the heart naturally opens. It's what it likes to do. Solitude, that not having a lot of outward stimulus and things to um, rev up our minds, and so that solitude allowing our minds to settle, our hearts to settle, that supports metta. The intention to cultivate metta supports the rising of metta, so that when we sit um, down or we go do our walking, and we have the intention to cultivate that quality that will support it arising. Focusing on um, goodness and beauty is said to be the proximate cause of metta or what causes metta to arise. So when we um, contemplate our own good qualities or we receive metta from our benefactor, um, seeing ourselves through their eyes. That helps the flowering or nurturing of metta. Or when we are um, contemplating our benefactor or other folks that we send metta to, and we're seeing the good in them, that helps metta naturally um, 
nourishes it and nourishes it. So, so we create these conditions. We're here where we've created all these conditions to help the um, cultivation or the nourishment of metta. And then the rest, you could say, isn't exactly um, up to us. It evolves and, and um, opens in its own way. So this is how we try without trying too hard. We create the conditions. And then the rest is the journey, the exploration, the, um, the sometimes feeling metta and the sometimes feeling other things and learning other things and seeing other, other things. So we more, more than trying to create metta, it's more like we relax into it. And then we can, um, we can be happy when, when we taste it, right? When it comes to fruition, because the conditions come together. Walt Whitman, um, in one of his poems, says, I am larger and better than I thought. I did not think I held so much goodness. <coughs> That's, that's touching metta. And um, we, we start to see that about ourselves. We start to actually see and believe in our own goodness. The power of our hearts to love. It's really beautiful when we start to recognize this capacity that we all have. And we can celebrate the little moments when there is that connection and we feel it. And then the other moments when it's not happening, those are our learning ground. They also um, nourish the cultivation of metta. So another assumption we may have when we come to metta practice is that we should feel metta all day that we should come here and sit down and it should be pretty easy and we should feel um, love all day. And that anything that's non-metta shouldn't be here. That that's uh, wrong practice. But metta is actually what we call a purification practice, which means that it's an exploration of the heart and its ways and its assumptions and where it's crooked and where it's bent and where it doesn't understand. All of that comes up when we do the practice. And supports, actually supports the deepening of the metta. One Zen teacher said that we never truly know our kindness until we can see our unkindness. So sometimes when we're doing metta, that's what we'll see. And it's part of the process. I first did metta, uh, hmm, how many years ago? Wow, almost two decades ago, early 90s. uh, And Michelle was my teacher. And I remember once that I went into her uh, sometime on into my practice. I was doing a couple months of metta practice. And I said to her, 
I've realized that I've never in my life wholeheartedly wished anybody well. That's what I was seeing, the unkindness, right? Or the hesitation or the holding back. And it wasn't such a pleasant thing to realize, but there was something powerful about realizing it because it was the truth. It was the truth of my experience. And I knew where I was starting. I knew where I was standing. So that, too, can be held in our practice. We need to challenge the assumption that there's parts of our human experience that um, must be sent into exile. In this same book by Lynn Jensen, I was reading a story about a Chinese Zen master named Chow Chow. And he uh, was telling his students that the the Buddha causes passion in all of us, which is a kind of a Zen way of putting things, but basically that we all have passion, and it wasn't um, meant in, in such the um, positive sense of the word, I don't think. And a monk asked, how do we get rid of it? And Chow Chow asked him back, why should we get rid of it? So maybe we can question our assumptions that we need to get rid of parts of ourselves. that we have to send parts of our human experience into exile to be okay. And can we see that doing that isn't the path of love? That the path of love is inclusivity. So what happens if we're doing metta and hate arises? Sometimes that happens, ill will arises in the heart and the mind. I find that very interesting. I also find that the more that I can allow ill will and meet it with a kindness-infused awareness, the more I can feel love. It's kind of an interesting paradox, isn't it? So if I notice ill will... When I notice a will these days, I'm more likely to go, wow, that's really intense. That's interesting. What's happening? So meeting the energy with curiosity. Of course we want to take care of it. We don't want just ill will to run rampant and to cause harm to ourselves or others or meanness. No, we take care of it with mindfulness. And hopefully with a kindness-infused mindfulness. Extra helpful. Another assumption that we might explore in our metta practice is... um, Scarcity versus abundance of love. So part of this hesitation when I first started practicing metta that I um, never wished anybody wholeheartedly well was I had this idea I discovered doing metta. I discovered that I had this idea that if I gave love away, I was going to have less. And that since I didn't feel like I had enough, I better keep it. Now, kind of like having a bank account for metta or love and like hoarding, trying to fill it up, right? 
discover, we discover that that isn't how love works. That actually, it, it, um, that love wants to be shared, and that the more we share, the more we have. It doesn't work like um, the way we might think scarcity and abundance work. Love only works when it's free and it's open. And as we fill with it, as we fill with metta, developing it for ourselves or for a benefactor, we find that it grows and it wants to spill out and it wants to be shared. That's its nature. Or we might question the assumption that we only feel metta or love for those that we like. Lynn Jensen again. He says, a few years after I undertook Buddhist practice, I took the four bodhisattva vows, the first of which is, though beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. All beings, I asked, people, birds, trees, stones, all beings, I was told. How, I asked, do I save all beings? The answer, by letting them in. Though I didn't quite grasp the implications of it at the time, in taking the vow to save all beings, I'd committed myself not only to save my family, friends, and the checkout clerk at the grocery store, but my supposed enemies as well, all the people I most feared and disliked in the world. I'd undertaken a practice of total inclusion. So metta's a practice of total inclusion. This year when we went to Burma, um, the government had kindly assigned a, a couple of policemen to be at the monastery to make sure that we were safe. And um, I was prepared not to like them. Uh, the uh, Burmese government, sometimes their motives could be questioned. And um, so I wasn't really sure about this person and what they might really be doing there or whatever. And. Um, so we, so this, there were two of them, and basically then there was just one. And he was this, um, there was something about him that was actually quite adorable. And there was this big platform up in the uh, courtyard, and he would lay all day on the platform, and he would listen to Burmese pop music and read what looked like a spy novel, <laughs> in Burmese, obviously. And... Um, we got quite friendly with him. He was really, like, I would walk by him and he would give me the thumbs up sign. He'd love to give me the thumbs up sign with this big smile. And um, then at one point, I think it was Greg bought him a Coke, a Coca-Cola. And um, it was either Greg or Jesse. And um, that's a big deal in Burma. It, they're very expensive in Burmese uh, money, a Coca-Cola. And so we got to, he, he became our friend. I was sad at the end to see him go. Hoped he would be back next year. At a certain point, actually, he moved from the platform into one of the little um, empty huts and would sleep most of the day. So he probably thought, wow, this is a great job I got here. So he might be back next year if he can arrange it. Um, 
But there's that great transformation in the heart when we see somebody that maybe our hearts are close to. And then there's a softening and a hope and an opening and that person becomes our friend. That's metta in action. So as I said, metta is encouraged by seeing the good in oneself and others. But sometimes when we're doing metta, we'll find that what's more front and center is suffering, either our own or the others, the other persons. And then um, we taste the heart of compassion. Compassion is the open heart of metta oriented towards suffering. And it's this response of the open heart to suffering, which is care, the response of care. It's the, it's the alive, poignant quality of heart that's willing to feel with. Compassion means to feel with. So, so we may find that we're doing metta and we become aware of our own suffering or the suffering of the benefactor or other person, whether it's illness or pain or devastating loneliness or fear or all of the, um, any of the many ways that we as human beings experience pain and suffering. And so we practice meeting those experiences with care, with compassion, feeling with, including. So this so so compassion is just the taste of the heart of metta when it touches or contacts suffering. And then if we do that, if we're doing that and we start to feel overwhelmed you know, we're getting lost in the suffering, then we do what is kind. And what is kind is to uh, find some way to redirect our attention, to back off. So we can go back to orienting towards what's good, which elicits metta, right? Or we can change to another person. Or we can be with our breath for a while or some other anchor that's neutral. So this is another aspect of of love and care, is this recognizing when we're getting overwhelmed with the contact with suffering and to um, learn how to do what is skillful, to move the attention somewhere else so that it can rest and refresh and rejuvenate. So related to this, what makes metta strong is when it's infused with wisdom or with equanimity. I think we've mentioned that there's four what are called Brahma-viharas, divine homes, homes of the heart. There's metta, compassion, mudita or appreciating joy, and equanimity, which is... um, the heart that's large enough and balanced enough that it can hold the full range of the experiences of being human. 
all the joys and all the sorrows. So you can see here that we're not talking about a superficial kind of love. We're talking about a deep love, a love that keeps deepening. And part of that deepening is realizing the challenge of living with an open heart in the kind of universe that we've taken birth in. This universe of constant change. This universe where um, we can't control the outcomes of many things. This universe that contains so many kinds of joy and so many kinds of sorrow. So we understand that we can love, we can care, we can connect, and that ultimately we can't control. So this is a huge existential question that comes up for us when we open the heart, is how do we have an open heart in this kind of a world? And equanimity is what gives us the strength to be able to do that metta-infused with equanimity or wisdom. So love infused with understanding how life is. And the unconditional part is that acceptance of life as it is. doesn't mean passive. It doesn't mean that we don't try to alleviate suffering um, or um, try to uh, do what's good and wholesome. But this kind of metta with wisdom is metta that can hold the truth of impermanence, that all changes. It's metta that can hold that life doesn't always go according to our wishes and that other people are essentially uncontrollable. It's metta that understands, although we can wish others well, and want the best for them, it won't always go that way. It's metta that understands we can't control others' destiny. So this other important part of metta is equanimity, the being able to hold all the joy and sorrow with balance. It's really about the large heart, So through this, metta develops strong and resilient heart. Our love becomes fearless when it's infused with equanimity. Our hearts can stay open and connected with the world as it is. And this is what allows us to be able to offer ourselves and others the gift of presence. It's like we, we can't really do presence in this world if we don't have metta. It would be too harsh. Metta makes it bearable, even joyful, to be embodied on this planet. I uh, teach the yearly teen retreat here. It'll start... Um, about 10 days at the end, at the, after the end of this retreat. And it's um, 
It's so fascinating to me that many, I think it feels like many of the teens who come to the retreat come uh, mostly for the love they feel here. Some of them want to learn to meditate, but I often feel that some of them tolerate the meditation (laughs) because they want the love. We really um, offer them uh, an atmosphere of utmost respect and connection. And then them sitting, you know, uh, they do about six half-hour sitting periods a day, um, walking periods, they start to really come into presence with themselves. And I think that nourishes the love, too. And then they have discussion groups where they support each other. And so the last day, we have a circle where they can come into the middle. We put this bell in the middle. And they can come in and say whatever they want and ring the bell, which is always a super delight, right, to actually be able to ring the bell. Um, Something we sometimes wish we could do as we're uh, sitting here. (laughs) So they enjoy that a lot. And they always talk about the love. It's always what they come back to over and over again. It's fun to watch them suffer through... I'm not fun to watch them suffer, but... (laughs) (laughs) Fun to watch them in the sittings and like how they, you know, sometimes they'll they'll look around the whole sittings, you know, uh, like almost all the time, and then the next year they'll come back. You know, they love it so much. And I think it's the love that gives them hope. It's hard to be a teen these days. The world does... It looks shaky, right? And so it's like the love that gives them hope that and it makes them know that it's workable. And I think this is true for all of us. It's the love that lets us know that anything that comes up is workable. One of my favorite all-time books is by uh, or was by a young woman named Eddie Hillisum. And um, the book is called An Interrupted Life, and it's the diaries of her uh, last couple years of her life when she was 27 to 29 years old. And uh, she was a young Jewish woman who lived in Amsterdam, and I believe the book's from like 1942 to 44. So when you think of suffering, um, eh, that's uh, pretty high up there on the scale. And... um, Throughout this book, she's watching what's happening to her people. And uh, most of it's pretty in- pretty unbearable, pretty hard. But what's fascinating about this book is to watch the development over two years of her, her heart. And in the beginning of the book, she, she feels somewhat kind of like a self-centered young woman. And by the end of the book, um, she has developed such a fierce and strong compassion. It's, um, it's mind-blowing. It's um, quite amazing. And so through the book, you watch, though, you watch her touch love or touch kind of the depths of compassion, and then you watch the doubt that comes in and the fear and the confusion and the fatigue, and then she'll get, she'll get back to the compassion, Right? So it's like that's what happens when we're developing these qualities is there, there is this, we will go back and forth some as we're trying to understand. Uh, 
so this year I read um, the letters that she wrote from the camp that she was in. And this is a letter that she wrote a few months before she died. And it's to her friend Maria. Many feel that their love of mankind languishes at Westerbork because it receives, receives no nourishment, meaning that people here don't give you much occasion to love them. Um, she's pointing to the fact that they're living under impossible conditions, and we all know that when we're under in, in impossible conditions, we aren't at our best. So she says, Many feel that their love of mankind languishes at Westerbork because it receives no nourishment, meaning that people here don't give you much occasion to love them. But I keep discovering that there is no causal connection between people's behavior and the love you feel for them. Love for one's fellow man is like an elemental glow that sustains you. The fellow man himself has hardly anything to do with it. Oh, Maria, it's a little bit bare of love here, and I myself feel so inexpressibly rich. I cannot explain it. Again, words fail, right? She says, I can't explain it. But you see that she's touched unconditional love. That she's understood that. And there's a sense um, from reading the books and the letters that um, it was the intense situation that pushed her, right? Pushed her to her edge to have to discover what this love is and what this compassion is. And so if we ourselves have challenging circumstances in our lives, we can take heart because they can be our doorway into the deepest and most mature love, the very things that challenge us, that push us to our edge. So here we are, we're planting seeds in our metta garden. So each time we have the intention to return and to cultivate metta, we're planting a seed. It may blossom later. We need that quality of patience that we've talked so long, so much about. Metta is a journey that uh, matures over time. There's a Christian nun named Hadda Witch of Antwerp, and she has a poem called A Love's Maturity. In the beginning, love satisfies us. When love first spoke to me of love, how I laughed at her in return. But then she made me like the hazel trees, which blossom early in the season of darkness and bear fruit slowly. What I get from that poem is this sense of patience. Patience. That love blossoms in its own time and that here we can just return over and over again to the intention, the creating the conditions that make that possible.
Let's sit for a few moments. We can end with a short Rumi poem. This moment, this love comes to rest in me, many beings in one being. In one wheat grain, a thousand sheaf stacks. Inside the needle's eye, a turning night of stars. Many beings in one being. you for your kind attention and we have about 35 minutes of walking meditation and then at nine o'clock there'll be chanting and sitting and it's going to be a short sitting so (laughs) you can do it is what we're trying to say Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.